Welcome to Pastor Potluck. This is Court Green. I'm here with, as usual, Peter Constantian. And we're joined today by one of the originals. I think he was on the first show, if not the first, then at least the second. He's nodding. He was on the first show. Ladies and gentlemen, back from his hiatus from Pastor Potluck is James Marsh. And I'm so glad to have you. Welcome, James. Good to be here, fellas. How you doing today, James? Good to see you. Excellent. I always like hanging out with my homies. <laughs> James is, is a pastor at Mount Zion and Fincher's Chapel Methodist Churches, and he's a hardworking young man and um, has become a good friend of mine, and I believe Peter's, I won't speak for him. Yes, definitely. I would consider us friends. Yes, me too. Well, this is, uh, this is the second week of Advent that we are preparing for which would be the first week in December, and that throws a lot of people off. People think Advent is just December, but it's the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. And this year, uh, we had our first Sunday of Advent in the month of November. This week, we're reading from the Old and New Testaments, and the, in center focus is a passage that many of us would be familiar with from Isaiah, because it is quoted by John the Baptist in the Gospel of Mark. So today we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. And James, as our guest, I'm inviting you, if you would be willing to read for us those five verses, and then we can have a little talk about how this applies to our lives today and to our churches. I'll be glad to, and I'm, I'm reading from the uh, Common English Bible here. Isaiah 40, 1 through 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak compassionately to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her compulsory service has ended, that her penalty has been paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is crying out, clear the Lord's way in the desert. Make a level highway in the wilderness for our God. Every valley will be raised up, and every mountain and hill will be flattened. Uneven ground will become level, and rough terrain a valley plain. The Lord's glory will appear, and all humanity will see it together, and the Lord's mouth has commanded it. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Peter. So I think there's two routes that we could take this right away, and something that we should point out, which is that this passage is in the Hebrew Bible. It was written by the prophet Isaiah, um, and it was addressed to a certain group of people. But later on, down the, down the road a bit, some one of you can tell me how many years exactly, Christians started to look back at this passage after Jesus had walked among them, and they realized, wow, maybe this applies also to the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, it's going to be in the late first century, early second century, century because if you look at Matthew, uh, Matthew is using Isaiah a lot. So mm -hmm. by the time his gospel is written, it's already, we're applying that to Jesus. Also, this is, would this be second Isaiah? Yes, because according to some. With chapter 40. Mm -hmm. okay, That's so, the distinction you won't find in your Bible. It's not marked Isaiah 1, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 3. But scholars would say that you can divide the passages of Isaiah into certain periods of time. And this would be in the second one. 
yeah. And the, the the tone changes if you go back and you read Very the prophecy. The tone changes here. So, which do you want to start off with? Do we want to talk about the context of the Old Testament, or we talk want to talk about the New Testament context, or do we want to talk about today's context? I think, in my opinion, that we should start with its context, where it lives in the Old Testament. And then work towards today. We can talk about New Testament if we want. It's up to y'all. But I think to understand it first and then apply it to our modern day is the more responsible way to do it. But I'm a fan of historical criticism. So there you go. All right. Well, let's just based on what we know um, or what we have studied, let's kind of paint a picture of what that context was at the time that this likely was written and uh, this message was delivered to people. I, I said, and I think this is right, that the, that the addressees, the people that this prophecy was written to were exiles in Babylon at the time. Is that right? By your Judean, Judean exiles uh, and perhaps some that are still there, but mostly those who are either exiles or being exiled or experiencing what the Babylonian exile was like in some way. Mm-hmm. And so, what I mean by that experience is, so now they don't have their own identity. Mm. The entire way of life is either changing drastically or is no more. Mm-hmm. And if you, you got to be careful with this, but if you couple it with things like Job, then they're, they're wondering what, what happened? What did we do to deserve this? How did the system we thought was so infallible go awry? Mm-hmm. About how long did the exile in Babylon last? It was a couple of generations. 70 years. 70 years. And this prophecy foretells, I believe it, it seems to be foretelling the end of the exile. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Verse 3 clear the Lord's way in the desert, make a level highway in the wilderness for our God. I've understood that to mean the path of return from Babylon to Jerusalem is being opened. Is that how you all read this? It's not how I do it, but I don't have a problem. Well, tell me how you read it, Court. In verse three, I, I think that it, I kind of put an Advent spin on it. It's mm-hmm. we want God to show up and do something. So let's prepare as if we believe God will. Okay. And the, yeah, the language that's used here is really interesting. Make a level highway in the wilderness. James Marsh, you expressed interest in this term wilderness in our conversation yesterday. Mm-hmm. Tell us what that word means to you and what, what kind of, richness you find in this verse in particular? Well, uh, when we were meeting for lectionary, um, Father Donatelli uh, kind of brought this to the forefront about how the wilderness is a place of preparation. That is where God prepares. Uh, and, And immediately I was struck with, and I thought back, well, like Moses, you know, he was fugitive you know he was tending his father-in-law's sheep and he's on the mountain and here's this bush you know that's burning uh or i thought of david who uh he's being prepared uh in the wilderness 
he's hiding in the caves with his band of merry men and he's 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 dodging Saul and uh you know they're living like like fugitives Mm. because they are yeah because they are fugitives yeah and uh you know and then we we go into the new testament where uh jesus is baptized at the jordan and he goes straight out of the water and he goes into the judean uh desert and he uh is tempted he's he and it's a it's a crucible it's a it's a time where that everything is stripped away, all of the things that you rely on, uh, the things that you seek your comfort in is stripped away from you, and there is nothing that you can rely on except God. Hmm. And it's there that he prepares you for better things. He prepares you for to do his work, and often it, you have to go through the desert experience, the wilderness experience. So Reverend. that's an experience in a context that I think a lot of Christians will find perplexing. James, you mentioned the word fugitive, fugitivity, Mm -hmm. and given your background in law enforcement, is it difficult for you to imagine that being the context in which divine encounters happen when somebody is actually on the run from the law? Mm -hmm. Uh, That is absolutely something I can get my mind around. Hmm. Uh, A person who is a fugitive like Moses, wanted for murder like David, wanted for treason. Um, It is is the situation where there's no, you can never lay your head down. There's no comfortable place. You're looking over your shoulder all the time. Uh, People are pursuing you and you're trying to stay ahead of them. And you are the wolves are nipping at your heels. Uh, you can never, you can never get any rest. And uh, you also know that it is likely that eventually you're going to be caught. That you can't hold this up. You can't keep this up forever. And uh, everything is stripped away that you find comfort in. So I found it interesting that as you took that idea of uh, verse three from the old Testament, new testament you went right to the cross and mm-hmm. our reason so interesting is in well all, really all of one through five you you get this idea of preparing the way for something to happen of god entering in of a hunger a real desire like almost desperation for god to come and act and to send salvation and then when we go to the New Testament, you went right to the cross, which is, in, in my opinion, from the people's perspective, is when they decide, oh, man, I guess that's not the guy. Whereas if you go to the nativity instead, then you have that same hunger, that same thirst, that same um, society and upheaval, and all we need is a savior to come and rescue us that you have in Isaiah. Well, the people were waiting for, of course, they were not looking for a, a, a savior to deliver them from their sins. They were looking for something much less than that. They were looking for a Messiah to rise up and lead an armed rebellion against Rome at, at that point. Court, you mentioned James going to the cross, and you said something about maybe that's not the guy. And I want to know, what, is, what did you mean by that as far as the people 
from the people's perspective, either in, in exile in Isaiah mm-hmm. or in the, at the nativity scene uh, around the time Jesus is born, you have the people who are hungry, please send us a savior. Please deliver us with this person who we can follow. Mm-hmm. Then at the cross, some of those people have followed the savior. I don't mean just the 12, but like he had disciples. And now at the cross, you have the ultimate symbol that this is not your savior, that you should not follow these people. And that symbol is crucifixion. <laughs> and so I think it's interesting that we bypassed the nativity in which the people are once again, hungry, please deliver us a savior. Mm and went to the cross where those people, I'm not saying it wasn't true that Jesus was the savior, but those people who at one time were clamoring for a savior and some of them who had followed him are now saying, I guess I followed the wrong guy, which I didn't do by the way. I don't want anyone to, I I mean, I probably am a heretic, but not on this one. (laughs) So they were looking for a particular kind of savior. If I'm hearing what you're saying there, uh, court, they were looking for a particular kind of savior. They had in mind what a savior would look like. Hmm. Uh, and, and, and that particular context of the nativity, they were looking for somebody to uh, deliver them from Rome. And he had much more deliverance in mind than that. Uh, and when he's hanging on the cross, they're like, well, that wasn't what we were expecting. Exactly. It's expectations. So, um, we expect a savior to look a certain way and we expect a savior to save a certain way. The problem though, is that a lot of times when God acts, we don't, well, all the time, we don't get to command how God will act. And so you expect to see a savior come a certain way and all of a sudden he's on a cross and is still saving, but not the way you had hoped, not the way you assumed. Well, and so this is really interesting to me because James was talking about Old Testament examples of fugitivity in Moses and David. And the Messiah is prophesied to be of the Davidic line. But the people are expecting a king Mm -hmm. as opposed to maybe the kind of uh, line that James was uncovering, which is a line of fugitivity of of being uh, chased by the establishment. Right. Yeah. And so Jesus on the cross revealed uh, revealed as the savior of the world is revealed as a fugitive who's been caught and crucified between two criminals, which is mind blowing in one sense. But at the same time, if, you, if we go back and read the New Testament letters, we're going to see that the early Christians grappled with this and eventually figured it out. And they, and they saw the genius and the brilliance in God revealing God's self in this way. I'm just thinking of those lines that we read, for instance, in Second Peter for this week, about how the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Well, what if Jesus himself comes like a thief? And of course, to those people who have clung to property as their source of salvation, mm-hmm. perhaps the Savior of the world does come as a thief. Because welcoming the Savior may not feel comfortable uh, for those of us who have put our hope for salvation in material wealth. That's a tangent. We can go on it or not, but I, I, just, I just am really excited by this 
this train of thought, I think it helps us break out of the mold of what we expect when we think about Jesus Christ coming as the Savior of the world. And uh, I think, to be honest, that's something we really need because the people who received him at the time, he wasn't anything like they expected either. Well, let me follow that with this question. How dense are we that we have not yet learned to expect the unexpected? Mm-hmm. If you look at Isaiah's context, who was the Savior that saved them from Babylon? Cyrus. The, per- the Persians, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Cyrus the Great. that's not exactly a Davidic line. And then Pagan. who is it that saves them from the Romans or, or their sins, I guess. But who is it that is sent as the Savior in the New Testament? It's Jesus, who was not someone you would expect, ends up crucified. It's, and now the question is, what happens when you take that logic another step forward and you bypass tons and tons of human history and you get to our day? And yet we still have decided that we are the masters of our destiny and we are the ones who can say what to expect God to do and how dare God ever do anything different. Hmm. Please, Jesus, save me, but do not surprise me. It, it's so arrogant. Hmm. Yeah, it's right. I mean, we, we often, in Christian circles, we say, oh, well, nobody knows the day of the Lord. Um, nobody knows, you know, when the day or the hour will be. And yet, we kind of, we feel like sometimes, maybe we don't say it out loud, but we feel like sometimes we'll kind of know. Yeah. And and here, to be fair, in verse five, if we want to apply it to today's context, in verse five of Isaiah 40, it says the Lord's glory will appear and all humanity will see it together. The Lord's mouth has commanded it. So what do you make of that? What do you make of God's glory being revealed and all humanity seeing it together? When I was growing up, I always thought, thought of that as some one instant thing that the world cannot deny but see. But as I think back on it, which is going to work out well for this story, it seems to make more sense that this may be a hindsight kind of thing. Because how rare, I mean, how rare is it for everyone in the world to see something at once? Mm. It doesn't really happen. But look back on things, then we start to say, ah, that's what happens. Well, and it, that's not biblical, that's my hunch. But what you say makes me think that seeing is not always understanding, right? So many well, that's people, absolutely true. Many, many people saw the crucifixion, but they didn't understand that that was, that was how God was destroying the power of, of death and sin. And so the day of the Lord or the Lord's glory, as we read here in Isaiah, it may be something that everyone sees, but not everyone understands. Yeah, that's the beauty of hindsight. So let's uh, change directions a little bit here. And we're kind of coming to a conversation about our current um, current events. And I, I just want to say that personally, I've kind of been really struggling over the past couple of weeks with um, the ongoing adaptation that's required to um, to the coronavirus pandemic and to how we have to modify our social interactions. And I've lived overseas 
in the past. And I, I realized that, that this has been very similar to, to what I've experienced in the past as far as culture shock of living in a different place. And at first it's exciting and new, and I'm not gonna say that the pandemic was exciting and new, but at first it was like, everybody's making masks and we're all in this together. And then mm -hmm. over time, and some of us got there a lot sooner than others, it's just become exhausting. And I've been in this position recently of this culture shock of, of I just want to go home. You know, like, I, I'm homesick and I'm, and I'm living in my own house, you know, and I think that maybe that's an experience that a lot of people yeah. just because so much has changed. And what you said earlier about how maybe this exile lasted 70 years, there it, there is at least a whole generation here in Babylon of people who have, they don't know anything different, but maybe they're also feeling that homesickness in a sense for a home that they've never had before. What do you make of that feeling? And, and is that, I don't know, is that something that y'all have been feeling too, or have you been feeling that similarly? And how might this passage speak a word of hope to those of us living today and to our church communities. Marsh, you chose them. You go first. All right. Um, so I was struck by the idea of the wilderness experience. Hmm. And, you know, every minute area of my life and your life has been impacted by this. And, you know, it turns out I'm a people person. <laughs> and to not be able to interact with people the way I normally do, uh, I love conversation and I get close to people when I'm talking to them. And, and uh, to have all of those things stripped away and in this time of Advent, to uh, have all of the traditions stripped away that we normally engage in and the blessing of this wilderness time if i'm allowed if i'm allowed to say that is that having all of those things stripped away having our comfort stripped away from us mm -hmm. may allow us just to see what advent really means to see the glory of the lord yeah find out just where our comfort is we're all i mean everyone is equally you know, there are people clearly suffering far more than me. I, I can't even call what I'm going through suffering, but certainly my life's been turned upside down. And, uh, you know, Thanksgiving, you know, we couldn't have the family gathering we normally do. because I didn't want to be responsible for that. I didn't want to be responsible for people getting sick, even though others are doing it, you know, and, and that was terrible, you know, I mean, to not to not be able to have the kids and my parents and everybody together and, and have a, a house full like we normally do where it's uh, you, you can't even, you're running over top of each other and it's glorious. Think how wonderful that'll be next year. Mm. You, maybe. Maybe. Without bringing it up, you brought up verse one because you said the word comfort numerous mm -hmm. times, but comfort oh comfort. My people says your God. So what, what, where do you see God bringing comfort? 
or how do you see, and I, we just talked about how God gives us the unexpected, but for you, how might God bring comfort? And then I want to talk about wilderness also. So something that struck me as I was thinking about this passage, and I'm preaching this passage Sunday. So if, if any of my folks listen, you're, you're getting preview. So for the, for those out there who are interested in Bible scholarly things, you know, the Septuagint is the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament that predated Christ. And, uh, you know, it's, and, and the value of going to that is that uh, you can see how words are used that are used in the New Testament. And this word comfort in the Septuagint is trans- translated parakaleo. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, Court. You are our Bible scholar. Close enough. Close enough. Which is the word that Jesus used for the comforter that would be sent, uh, the Holy Spirit. And the com- our comforter is the Holy Spirit. And in this time of wilderness, uh, it's turning into the into God. We're turning towards the great shepherd. Getting close is the only thing we have for comfort. Uh, we, we are seeing potentially the end. We, you know, we hear about uh, uh, the vaccine and that, uh, you know, but even even then it's still an, it's still quite a ways out before it really matters, you know, before everyone can be vaccinated and this can truly be over. And then the recovery will take much longer. Hmm. But one of the things that for me personally is that has happened during this pandemic is the drawing closer and the experiencing the Holy Spirit in a way that I might not have had I not gone through this. So the reason that I asked that question and also put in the caveat that I want to talk about wilderness is that, and it, I think I'm going to be able to tie this to what you're just saying. I'll try. Um, and I think it, I, th- I think you'll agree that, that it ties together well. So when I want comfort, ironically, considering this passage, I go to the wilderness. And I know that contextually it's not, mm-hmm. it's not meaning going out hiking or going out. I and mean, when it says wilderness, it's a place that's new and dangerous, but well, unexplored and dangerous. So, but, but when I go out into the wilderness, it's because, and many pastors feel this way for me, you don't find God in church because church mm-hmm. is work. Um, and so you have to go to a place where you know you can find God. And for me, that is the wilderness. The reason I bring that up is because there should be some comfort in knowing that wherever you are, God is there. Wherever you, in the wilderness, mm-hmm. God is there. If God can find me way the heck out here where my cell phone can ring, then God must be able to access me anywhere. I think that, especially because you brought up the the Holy Spirit, I think that these verses show us how untrappable, I guess, untetherable, I don't know, you you can't cage God, uh, containable, God is. And no matter what's going on in the world, whether it's a captivity, whether it's, or I should say an exile, or fast forward to the New Testament, a, uh, an oppressive government from which you need salvation, 
or whether it's um, a pandemic, God's there. Mm-hmm. And so God's presence alone can be our comfort. It doesn't always feel like it, but just the knowledge that no matter what's going on, God is there. No matter how wilderness I am or how remote my wilderness is, I should God is there. And I think that that is comforting and that should, that's how I tied those two things together. You like that? Well done. Well done. I think that, yeah, I like that a lot. And I, I think what you're describing to me, the way I would rephrase it is just to say that, you know, when we go out into the wilderness where for, for those of us for whom that is a comforting experience uh, to, to get away from James, the word that you've been using all along, it's been this stripping away that happens. We, we choose to strip away all of the typical comforts that we have in our home or office or whatever. And we go out into a place where there's less of that. So there's less to pay attention to that stripping away is, is something that I think Christians are actually invited to choose to do regularly in more than just their physical location as far as where they are, but, but also in terms of their, um, you know, material possessions and the, their busyness of their schedule, especially in a time of Advent uh, or Lent would be the other one. We're invited to strip away, mm-hmm. get back to basics. And it occurs to me that that stripping away is not always, that stripping away is often what leads to a more authentic experience of God's presence, but it's not often something that we choose mm-hmm. unless we've been forced into a, a situation of, of having things stripped away from us in the past. And we know what that encounter was like. And so I'm thinking, you know, in my personal life, I struggled with um, alcohol for a while and I went through a divorce and I had to um, change careers and all of that together was a stripping away that I didn't ask for. I kind of asked for it, but I didn't like choose it. Mm-hmm. But in the midst of that, that's when I encountered God most authentically and started being able to follow because all of that stuff was stripped away from my life. And so now I know that when I feel the weight of the world and the busyness of my schedule building up, that stripping away uh, intentionally and choosing to do so is how I ground myself, is how I return, uh, repent, if you will, return and focus my attention on God again. And I think that's something that um, we as pastors ought to be inviting people into during this season of Advent. Would you agree? I would. Oh, yes. Um, and, you know, dovetailing into what you were talking about, I think about one of the most formative events in my life was a wilderness experience. You know, it's something that I learned there. Um, you know, I was a cop for 20 years, and uh, by the end of my career, I did it at a pretty high level. I mean, I, I, I in fact, just as I left, uh, I was uh, involved in a death penalty case. And, um, 
suddenly I had it stripped away from me. Uh, and my identity was taken away. I mean, that's, that's how I felt. I mean, my whole life's work was on the rocks and it, I went through some depression over it and, uh, you know, and the Lord took care of me, provided uh, meaningful work that actually, you know, re replaced the income loss and everything. But it was only at the point which took about two years of me being empty of myself and having surrendered that and having accepted, well, what do you have for me, Lord? I'm available. You know, that's what I've got. I'm available. And it was only at that point that I first had the first uh, nudgings of the Holy Spirit and, and things that would come along. This, you know, somebody said, hey, James, you know a lot about Scripture. You ever thought about preaching? I'd be like, what? James Marsh, really? Are you kidding me? And uh, it was only at that point that I was uh, at a place in my life that I could that the Lord could use me hmm. looking back on it, uh, on losing the career. Uh, I would never have given that up on my, of my own will that had to be stripped for me to move into this chapter of my life, or I would have never been willing because it was my comfort place it was comfortable. It was a place that I was at the top of my game and, and, uh, that was my self-worth and it had become an idol even. And uh, so maybe that's really what could happen for us during this time in the wilderness, uh, in this pandemic, is our idols are being stripped from us. And we're finding out just what really matters and what really doesn't. You bring up a good point, and that is that beyond the pandemic, which is, of course, top of mind, mm -hmm. there are so many other ways in each individual's life not, I mean, let's say after the pandemic, before the pandemic, but even during, uh, we all go through other stuff that has mm -hmm. nothing to do with that. I mean, I guess everything in some way has something to do with it now, but we, we all go through our own personal things and these verses still apply. Mm -hmm. So it's tempting to make everything about the coronavirus. The life still goes on and there are other things that at least in their moment, are more important to us at the time. And darkness creeps in in other ways. And these verses are still here for us. Whether we think to use them for that or not is on us, but they're still here for us. They still offer hope. They still bring comfort and cry out to the hers that we are, um, that we have served our time, our penalty is paid, and we have received from the Lord's hand double for all of our sins. I think that was a, a verse that you you found a particular interest in. We haven't spent that much time on verse two, the second part of verse two, as far as um, the penalty that has been paid or uh, what, what sounds to me like maybe punishment from God's hand, as we read in verse two, that the that that Jerusalem has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Was there any more you wanted to say about that before we close? Yeah, I can talk about this all day, actually. So I think, I mean, this is just my opinion that verse two is the most powerful part of this entire pericope. And that is because it's the answer to the question that number the verse one begs. Oh, comfort my comfort, says your God. 
okay, how, how's God going to comfort us is the question. Answer, well, there's, there's first the instructions, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Well, what do you cry? She's served her time. Your penalty is paid. And she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So it's the, the answer. What, what is the comfort? It's freedom. The comfort is a statement that the penalty that you are serving for whatever sins you, you've committed is now paid. And that's got to be a relief. Mm-hmm. Uh, implied in that, in my opinion, is that the suffering will come to an end is that you will be made whole again, mm-hmm. which we talked about that on in last week's show, you know, are you ever made whole after you pay this penalty? Well, that's neither here nor there. You will once again be, you will once again be restored to whatever former greatness you had. That's the implicit promise, in my opinion, of this announcement that whatever your sins were, you, you paid for them. So they can be in the rearview mirror and you can look ahead to a bright future. And that should bring us comfort because it tells us that whatever we're going through, it's not forever, or at least it doesn't have to be. Now, the problem I think that many people have, and the reason we don't use verses like these, and there are plenty of them, is that we won't let go and we won't let ourselves move on to this bright future that is implied in here. And there's many reasons, and I'm one of them. I punish myself like crazy when I fail and shouldn't. And my wife gets onto me all the time for it and should. And yet the next time I fail, or even if I don't really fail, but I see something I did is not quite successful. I jump on myself like crazy. And so we have this problem in here where we've been given this comfort that your penalty is paid for whatever it is. And we don't have, it doesn't have to hold us down anymore. And yet we hold ourselves down because we just can't get, because we, we still, we, and Reverend Marsh, you talked about identity earlier. Mm-hmm. We sometimes identify with our failures or we identify with something that is then stripped of us and we can't find a new identity. And I struggled with that for two years. And so we won't let ourselves move forward into whatever bright future God has for us. And when you're serving a living God, who is infinitely creative and does not let you control that God's creativity, that's crippling because we are limiting our, we are putting limits on ourselves, but in reality, we're putting limits on what God can do because we refuse to perceive what God will do in the future that we can't understand because we can't see it. I'm kind of rambling a little bit here. Sorry about that. Sorry. Like I said, I could talk about these verses all day. Now, the question I think that Peter was asking is uh, the the more controversial side of this. Do we deserve it? What what is what are the sins? Is that where you were going with this? In a way, yes. I mean, I definitely wanted to hear what you had to say. I I, I was I didn't have any kind of objective in mind, but I do want to mention that before we go, because if we're talking about the people that this that this uh, prophecy was was written and directed to, not all of them, I, I refuse to believe that all of them were guilty of whatever crime uh, was committed. There were a whole lot of people that were, to- that were torn away from their daily life in, 
into exile. It was a, you know, this is a punishment on a community. And certainly there were crimes committed, there were sins committed on the part of the leadership uh, and maybe on the part of everyday people, uh, residents of Jerusalem. But I think it, it's pretty difficult for me anyway to understand how um, exile for 70 years can be a one-to-one uh, or a two-to-one, in this case, punishment for whatever was committed by every single person that experienced that. And the reason I want to bring that up is because there's a lot of suffering still today. There's a lot of people that are feeling exile or they're, fe- or they're experiencing fugitivity. And they may not be guilty of anything. And yet, for whatever reason, they find themselves in this situation feeling this kind of uh, like this kind of punishment is being meted out against them for no reason. And uh, I mentioned that because and because my eyes have been opened to that reality by uh, black theologians who write on the experience of enslaved African people in the United States. Um, And so I wanna recommend to you and to our readers two books on this subject that I think um, have taught me so much about the experience of fugitivity. Um, One of them is called The Undercommons, Fugitive Planning and Black Study by Fred Moten, M-O-T-E-N, and Stefano Harney, H-A-R-N-E-Y. And that's a difficult book to read. It's, I read it mostly like poetry, but it, it speaks a lot about that concept of being a fugitive and that experience of, of being stripped away of everything that you know or find comfort in and being on the run from the, from the very society, the very world that, you're, that you've been entrapped and enslaved into. And then um, the other book is Sisters in the Wilderness by Dolores Williams. And she takes uh, a really interesting look at, at Ishmael and Ishmael's mother, Hagar and Hagar's experience in particular in the wilderness. And uh, I learned so much from those books and we don't have enough time to get into that today, but I did want to at least put that in the, in the comments so that folks can, can look that up if they're interested in. Any last thoughts uh, on this topic for Advent 2 from you, James, or Court? Well, uh, I wanna point out from our lectionary here that uh, these words of Isaiah 40 are the opening words of what scholars say is the earliest gospel Mark, the opening words of Mark, the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, God's son, happened just as it was written about in the prophecy of Isaiah. Look, I am sending my messenger before you. He will prepare your way, a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Uh, that's the comfort. That's the good news. And that's how the gospels open. So let us uh, continue in this uh, season of Advent and, and prepare ourselves for the coming of Christ. James Marsh, thank you so much for joining us today. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, James. It's good to be with you. Until next time, this is Pastor Potluck. I'm Peter Constantin. I'm Court Green. 
I'm James Marsh. Peace.